Hi Venters, welcome back to another episode of Behind the Mic. This is a Vent music podcast series hosted by me, Freddie Cocker. This podcast, as you know, is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. In each episode of Behind the Mic, I check in with artists across different music scenes in the UK and beyond. We talk all about their musical journeys, their artistry, and most importantly, the person behind the mic. My special guest for this episode of Behind the Mic is a New Zealand-born musician who currently resides in Berlin and makes melodic, vocal-driven house and electronic music. I came across Fletcher Mills, aka Fletchy Boy, through a live show he did from his apartment balcony and I knew I had to get him on the podcast. Fletcher emigrated from New Zealand to have a fresh start away from the goldfish bowl of the country after he went on the country's version of X Factor and had a negative experience on it a few years ago. When he arrived in Berlin, he wanted to change the genre of music he had been performing on the show and began making the house music he makes today. In this episode, we discuss how he's tried to find balance as an artist, seeking validation and the gap between signed and unsigned artists and how stark the opportunities that come your way can be when you transition from the latter into the former. For Fletcher's mental health, we discuss his experience on the X Factor from a professional and a personal perspective, his move to Berlin and the new life he has built for himself. So get yourself comfy and have a listen as I go Behind the Mic with Fletchy Boy. Fletch, welcome to Behind the Mic. Thank you so much for coming on and letting me check in with you all the way from Berlin, although you are New Zealand born. I was so glad to have you on, not just because of your music, but you'll hopefully help some of my female listener numbers as well. So uh, there's that too. How are you, no, mate? Thanks for having me. I'm great. I'm great. Just coming off a, um, a show on Friday and had a great weekend. Public holiday as well today in Germany. So As it is here? Uh, yeah, exactly. Enjoying the sun. Get a time to um, yeah go out there and see some friends. Excellent, mate. After I came across your balcony live show, it was such a unique content idea. I knew I had to try and get oh, you on the you. pod and here we are. So without further ado... Are you ready to start the show? I'm ready. Let's start behind the mic as we always do by talking about your music journey, Fletch. So I ask all my artists this question first. Tell me and the listeners how your love affair with music began. Who were some of the artists you listened to growing up? What impact did they have on you? And when did you first start singing or playing instruments? So, well, first of all, I think it's important to say I'm the second youngest of six children. And oh wow i'm on yeah. a four so yeah 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 so <laughs> i was fans. always listening to hard for me to choose the music in the car but my parents were always listening to a lot of music and also my siblings introduced me to a lot of music so i think the biggest artists radiohead was a huge one for me also mm. for me to see you know like how amazing an album can be and how much difference an artist can have also james blake bonnie veer fortet Steely Dan, you know, there's just like a bunch of people that my parents always listened to. And then as my siblings also kind of went through high school and started listening to The Strokes and other people like that, it also inspired mm. me as well. 
Fortet's a pretty booky guy, as we say in the UK. Yeah, exactly. Like, in all these interviews when he's like, oh, I've seen God through like doing LSD exactly. and stuff. It's exactly. like Joe, Joe Rogan stuff, man. Exactly, exactly. And it's amazing to see him as well nowadays next to Fred again, you know, because Fred yeah, obviously like, like really a new revival to the mainstream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, Fortet, he's so amazing. He's so versatile and everything. But, you know, see him on that stage, it's quite funny. You began your musical life professionally by learning classical piano when you were a child mate and it's mm-hmm. fair to say that you weren't passionate about it then as i'm sure a lot of children find classical yeah. piano so how did that lead to the passion you obviously have for music now and other instruments which you've taken up the thing is with piano i did like playing it i did like learning pop songs and stuff like that but it was just, just the not it was the, <laughs> yeah, it was just the practicing that i wasn't so good at you know and so i would have to write in in my notebook every week how many minutes i've practiced and i was always oh yeah quite far below the yeah i was quite far below the um the recommended amount but i always liked the idea of learning new pieces and you know it got to a stage in high school where i kind of realized that luckily i was going to a high school where music was very well received and I started playing in the musicals and stuff like that. And it made me really appreciate having the knowledge of playing piano, which was great. And then, you know, singing in the choirs as well. And then basically being able to combine those two things that really like started my love for music and made me want to start making some of my own. And it was in high school that a friend suggested that you take music during the New Zealand equivalent of what we would have in the UK of GCSEs. And from there, you started writing music of your own. So how important was that moment? Because I imagine if your friend hadn't done that, do you think you'd be where you are with music now or not? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say because I was always passionate about music, but he was a friend that, you know, we went to Kings of Leon together when we were 10 years old. It was the first live show that I'd, you know, saved up money and paid for. And he was always going to do music. He was an amazing guitarist, but I had never, ever considered taking it as a subject, you know? So I wonder, you know, I mean, I would like to think, yes, I would end up here anyway, but at the time, it was not something I was considering, and I'm super glad that I ended up taking it because I also learned a lot about songwriting there and arrangement and all that stuff. And coming from just a classical piano perspective, the classical piano side or the classical world can be quite non-creative, you know, and that was actually mm. something I struggled with, you know, because I wasn't able to put my own spin on things as much. The first song that you ever wrote covered a hugely emotional topic, which was the earthquakes that took place in Christchurch in mm-hmm. 2011 in your home country and killed 185 people which is pretty bonkers actually for New Zealand considering the population size how do you reflect on the song given the topic and you know what impact did you have you know I'm not I'm not saying it was going to reach the whole country but perhaps your local community as well people who listen to it no actually before that you know I had thought about writing songs but I had really struggled with it and this song came so organically and and was written there's basically this competition that's been started by a friend of mine Mike Chun and it's for high school students basically giving them support and allowing them to record a song professionally and it gets released on a CD every year and it's called Play It Strange. And it's amazing. My sister was also part of it. That's how I heard about it. They've had artists like Kimbra and stuff who started in this competition in high school. And I wrote the song with this competition in mind and I got selected as one of the top, you know, I got able to record it in a professional studio. And from there, basically that opened a lot of doors for me in terms of Mm. playing shows, you know, and that really started the ball rolling and made me realize that maybe I, I could do this more. It came very organically, and that was also something I liked about the song because I didn't think about it too much. It was quite a simple concept about the song. It was just piano and me singing. My brother also sang on it. And and yeah, I think it really started the process of becoming mm. a songwriter. The ball rolling. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. At this point, like a lot of Kiwi lads, you were 
pretty into rugby. A rugby ball is probably given to most <laughs> Kiwi lads and girls from birth, to be honest. I think it's in, in our genes, country. I think, yeah. Yeah, and it's in the genes, yeah, yeah. It's like football in the UK, but we're not as good. Um, <laughs> when did the balance tip in favour of music versus rugby? You've still got the guns, by the way. I should say all my female <laughs> listeners. <Thank you. laughs> well, I mean, I think it was, a, it was a gradual process. I think one of the main things, I was playing representative rugby up until the age of, of 14 in, in Wellington. Mm. And as you can imagine, there gets to a point where size does become an important yes. part of the game. And I'm not a small guy, but there was a point where I was playing flanker. And, you know, when you're 15 and you're competing against people who are, you know, 100 to 120 kilos, it does have quite an impact. And it was kind of got to a point when I was at 15 where it was either going to be something that I had to really work on and, yeah. you know, put on some muscle. And it was also a school that was very, very competitive in rugby. And so then I, you know, I was already in the choir and stuff like that. In the same year, I got selected for the National Secondary Schools Choir. So that also took up quite a lot more time. And yeah, so I think just like through a few different things where, mm. you know, I was kind of pushed in a few ways, got more opportunities with music and I got a few less opportunities with rugby. And by the end of high school, I was still playing rugby, but it definitely mm. wasn't the main thing I wanted to do. Given your ability to play rugby at that fairly decent level, Obviously, in the UK, sometimes bullying takes place with kids who are into music and are perhaps more creative. Did the fact that you were great at sport kind of insulate you from that and allow you to, to navigate school without too much difficulty? Yeah, well, I mean, I changed schools. I was in one school in year nine in my first year. And I remember I was learning jazz piano through the school and I was so embarrassed that I was learning piano that I used to hide, you know, put my head down on the window when, when my friends would walk past. And this was just for one year, but then I moved to this other school, Wellington College, and luckily music was very well respected there, you know? And I think it was quite unique in New Zealand because also being smart was very celebrated, you know, being musical was very celebrated. And so there was no real hierarchy, you know, the rugby thing was also, you know, obviously a big part of it, but, you know, being in the, the choirs- and yeah, Exactly, yeah, yeah. and being in the choirs, there was a lot of rugby players who were also in the choir, and there were also rugby players who were in the- God, yeah, I can't even super, imagine that now. <laughs> super strange. And also, you know, like, also like the rugby players who were leading the dance, you know, this thing called stage crew, I think it was called. And it was like a big dance competition and you'd have to learn a big dance and like all that stuff. So it was very unique in that sense, you know, and I, I was very grateful to be, you know, being at an age where I was very... Malleable? What's the word? Yeah, malleable and kind of, you know, I was seeing how people saw me and I was affected mm. by that. It was very nice for me not to have to think about that in terms of my music. Yeah, it wasn't like Glee where all the American football players are all like <laughs> hiding the fact they're going to Glee Club. <laughs> yeah. No, no. But I mean, to be honest, there was a point in, in university where I was playing, you know, a couple of years into university where I was playing where it did become more of an issue. But I'm sure we'll talk about that yeah, uh, later. Sure. Let's talk about you as Fletcher Boy, the artist in depth now. So how would you describe your sound for the listeners who haven't heard you? So the way that I always... What I'm trying to do with my music is coming from a more songwriter background with R&B and piano and stuff, and then being inspired by the house scene, I'm trying to create a moment of introspection within a night of ecstasy. So basically, oh. you know, if you think about someone like Fred again, he is writing first and foremost dance tracks that mm -hmm. people are going to play in a club. But then on top of this, he adds these beautiful voice memos or, you know, vocal melodies that are very emotional. And I think that when people are dancing, they are mainly there to have a good time, but they're also there to make connections with people. They're also more open to 
talking and being open and stuff. And there's also this opportunity to have really amazing memories. And that's mm-hmm. really what I'm trying to tap into. Before we talk about live performance and producing, I always ask my guests on Behind the Mic to talk about the realities of being an artist that their fans, their friends, or even their family might not see. This can be anything from work-life balance to, to anything else. What can you tell me about this from your experience, mate? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that especially with social media nowadays, you know, most people I talk to, it always seems so good. This is also the way with social media and life in general. But for me now, you know, I'm lucky enough to be able to spend most of my time making music. I was working in a cafe for a long time. I still do other things for money. You know, I'm, I'm doing a bit of modeling and stuff like that. But all in yeah, all, not, I can... not only fans, not less than yeah, listeners, yeah, no, no only fans. No, no, no. Yet. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm doing like, you know, I can do some production jobs and, you know, I can still do work in hospitality and stuff every now and again. But I'm spending most of my time making music, which is really good. But that also poses this challenge of spending a lot of time by yourself. And mm. I think for musicians, when it's on the side and when it's not the main thing that you're doing, it also provides this barrier because you can feel like, well, I'm not fully committed to it, you know, and then maybe this is why I'm not succeeding because I'm only spending 20 hours a week doing it. And if I was spending 60 hours, then it would be a completely different story. And so for me, I, you know, it's every day that you wake up with everything is on you, you know, how hard yes. you work, how many songs you finish, how many emails you sent and everything. People want you to succeed, but, you know, in reality, if they want you to succeed, the people that you want to be involved in your music they're going to do it for their own benefit as well. You know, they see something that excites them about you and they want to be a part of it because it it affects them as well. And so I think that's the real challenge is to keep yourself motivated the whole time and to be working hard because you believe in it, you know? Let's move on to live performance. So just tell me about the first ever live performance you did as an artist, whether that's in your new guys or in your old guys back in New Zealand. So I'm just trying to think. I mean, I did... In high school, I performed a few times in these school performances and playing my own music and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And also through this high school competition where I wrote the song about the Christchurch earthquakes, they also provided me with some some amazing opportunities, you know, playing in, in bigger venues around New Zealand and stuff like that. But it would only be for for one or two songs, you know, so I wasn't performing full sets. And that didn't really start until until Berlin, I think. You know, okay. I was making music with my brother before we moved here. And we did one show before that, but that was also quite a short show. And there was definitely nerves playing my own music, but nothing compared to playing the classical piano stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Well, tell me about the first performances, Fletcher Boy, in Berlin then. We're obviously going to talk about in a second how this was this rebirth and rise from the, not the ashes maybe, Uh, but just a new life for you. So just tell me how that felt doing this new guys and new artistry journey. Yes, that was actually during Corona, you know, so, mm-hmm. so during Corona, that was also the time where I was going through this phase of being more and more inspired by electronic music. And I knew what I wanted to do, you know, I've known what I wanted to do with Fletchy Boy for three or four years. But putting that into practice and transferring my skills from an R&B perspective into a dance floor focused set, you know, that was the thing that was really challenging. And so my first performance as Fletchy Boy was switching from Logic to Ableton for a live set that was going to be continuous, you know, and the idea was that, you know, the music was never going to stop so that people were going to dance and as if they were in a club. And, you know, it was it was pretty amazing to see a lot of my friends from Berlin that I had, you know, at this stage, I'd been in Berlin for a year, they hadn't seen me perform live. And they were very, you know, they loved it. And they were putting over free. So that probably helped. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's it's nice to it's nice to show everyone what I've been doing all this time in the studio and stuff like that. And 
I think from there as well, you know, the thing with if you want to play dance music is that you can produce it in the studio and you can see how you think it sounds, but it's not until you start playing it live that you see how well it translates, you know? And so mm-hmm. playing live for me, that's one of the reasons why playing live is kind of my major focus at the moment is because you have to see how it translates for the audience, you know, mm-hmm. because the dance music really has to be able to speak to the audience. It's not something they're listening to on their own in bed, you know, with lots of time on and to pay attention. It's, it's also about a feeling and how it makes them feel if that makes them want to dance or it makes them want to switch off and start talking. So from there, it's been just kind of lots of great feedback and learning from that as well. I always also get my artists on behind the mic to talk about a bad set or performance in their life because most importantly, what can we learn from it? How can you help my other artists perhaps who are listening learn from potential mistakes too? So is there one or two stories that you feel comfortable sharing and what did you learn from them? For sure. You know, I'm starting to get a bit more, I have more and more people coming to my shows in Berlin now because I've established more of a life here. But that means that whenever I go back to New Zealand and try and play, that it's a little bit more difficult because I'm coming back after not having seen anyone in two years and stuff like that. And I remember this one time, you know, I was playing a show in Wellington and my brother, he's also, you know, he's, he's making clothes. And at the same time, he was doing a stall in a market somewhere else in New Zealand. And we both had these days where we kind of felt at some point, you know, that no one was really there for us and no one was really paying attention to our work. And it was quite a difficult day for both of us. And I remember us having this conversation and sort of feeling like, well, it's pretty hard to be in this position where you've put in all this effort and you really feel that you have something to offer. But for some reason, it's not really coming across or people are not really, you know, paying attention to it. And something that really helped me was this conversation that we had where we kind of said, look, you know, the good news about this is you can always say no to this, you know, like you can Mm -hmm. always say, this is too tough for me. And, you know, I don't want to deal with this pain of feeling like I'm being rejected or feeling like people are not listening to me. But the bad news is, if this is what you want, there's no other way to go about it. This is just like a completely, yeah, yeah, this is a completely necessary part of the process. And you know, there's no other way around it. There's no way to kind of skip the step of struggling to get people to come to it's your like shows. The gym. There's no shortcuts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, so that's why it's kind of nice to know like, okay, well, on the one side, I can always pull out of it. You know, no one's forcing me to, to have these moments of doubt. But at the same time, you know, to sort of say, well, this is just part of the process. It's, it's mm. not going to go away at any point, you know. Conversely, then, what has been the best show you've ever done for your mental health and your professional self-worth? Oh, well, I actually wanted to say the show on Friday because... I really try and improve on every performance, you know, and at this stage, a big part of how I feel my performances go is how much people want to dance, you know, and how many people come up to me afterwards and say that they really loved what I did. And on Friday, it just really felt like everyone there was really, you know, happy to be there. And there was a lot of dancing going on. The set seemed to be, I was really proud of the way that the set was put together. There was a few new songs in there and I felt like it translated as a house set, you know, as opposed Mm -hmm. to people standing and watching someone performing their own stuff. I mean, I would say, I mean, definitely a highlight was the last window concert I did. So I was doing these shows during Corona and in the final one, I told everyone it was going to be the last one because Corona was kind of finishing and I wanted to kind of end it on a nice note. And the Berliner Zeitung, so like the newspaper from Berlin, they wrote an article about me and then this got like a whole bunch of new followers. And then for the last show, there was like 250 people outside my house and it ended up getting shut down by the police. But even the police were like recording it and they didn't want to shut it down, but they kind of, they kind of had to because they were just doing their job. 
so yeah that was really amazing i mean to be in a city all the way across the other side of the world and having so many people there for my music you know that was a really a special mm. moment and speaking of the stage what does it provide for you and your mental health um i mean that's the thing i mean if the show goes well this was something i was thinking about last week about the performance is that you know sometimes you're putting so much pressure on yourself that there's so much writing on the performance and you can put in all the right amount of work but if for some reason the timing's not right or something about the setup is not right where your music doesn't come across in the right way I think it's very hard as a musician to not get frustrated that if you feel there's a real opportunity for your music to do something to the people and then for whatever reason there's not enough people there or the sound system's not great or whatever it's very hard to not be disappointed you know but on the other side when you do have a performance that really feels like you're adding something you know and you have people coming up to you and saying that it really affected them and stuff I think it's one of the best feelings ever you know because you mm. really feel like hey, I actually am, I'm right about this. I'm right about the fact that I'm adding something and that I've, I'm providing something unique, you know, because for me, I feel like if someone enjoys the music, that's one thing, but for them to come up to you and say something afterwards and want to know more about you, then I think it must have had to affect them, you know? It mm. must have had an effect on them because, it, you know, a lot of people are shy and a lot of people, you know, they can't really be bothered saying how they really feel. So I think it's just really reassuring and, and often it gives me, a lot of strength to keep carrying on you know and, and a good performance can give me strength for months you know mm. before we move on to a more challenging period of your life mm -hmm. which outlet out of producing songwriting or playing instruments has the biggest impact on your mental health well hmm. i would say the writing side comes reasonably easy to me i always have you know being in a place like berlin and you know it's basically the capital of you know, of dance music, there's always inspiration coming and I never have a shortage of, of ideas that I want to write. So I always feel like writing music, you know. I think the thing that really affects my mental health is getting the tracks finished and putting in the work when maybe I don't feel like it or putting in the work that doesn't excite me so much. So things like recording my vocals and getting the song as perfect as it could possibly be and sitting down and making sure the structure is perfect or mm. sending around emails to labels or managers and stuff like that and i think the marketing has, side yeah, yeah. I, I know that's not good <laughs> but i think that side really shows me you know when i'm not doing it i feel you know frustrated because i think that i would like to be getting more recognition and stuff but when i do it i really feel like you know i'm treating it like a professional you know and that makes mm. me feel like i'm taking it serious and i always say to myself that i can't make it a career if i treat it like a hobby Mm. And so, you know, when I have these moments of being very disciplined and sitting down and, and, you know, maybe I'm not feeling like finishing the song or whatever, but I force myself to kind of stay there and, and put the work in, then it allows me to kind of feel like I can do it, you know? Let's talk about a challenging period of your life, mate, a very chaotic period. And it's when you decided to go on the X Factor New Zealand. Mm -hmm. So you are 17 years old at the time and you initially wanted to study classical piano at university before you did this. So mm -hmm. tell me why you made the decision and your experience of being on the show. Well, I don't know if you know an artist called Matt Corby. He's a Yes, um, I do. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's an Australian singer, and he was actually on, I think it's Australian Idol, when he was 16 or 17 or something like that. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. And he at the time, I was listening to him a lot, you know, and so I kind of saw him and I saw how he had become famous and how it had helped him. And I really just wanted a way to, at the time I was already writing a lot of music and stuff, and I just wanted a kind of stage to, to show people my music and to share my music with people. And 
that was kind of my main drive. And yeah, so I auditioned and the producers loved me and they said, you know, you could come to the, so you do like a kind of pre-audition yes. to decide if you're going to get onto the live auditions and then, you know, from there, then it goes as normal. But my main goal for the show was to just share my music. In New Zealand, like England, we have a trend that is sometimes turbocharged, I think, which is called tall poppy syndrome. Mm-hmm. Now in New Zealand, it's exemplified largely by the New Zealand rugby team who famously advocate the no dickheads policy. Mm-hmm, but this mm-hmm, can mm-hmm. leak into people with big personalities sometimes being discouraged from expressing those yeah. big personalities. How did that trend or societal cultural norm play into your experience on the show? So I got onto the live shows. So I basically got 10th overall. I did four live shows. And then after the fourth week of live shows, I was kicked out, you know? So for me, the hard part was basically once I was on the live shows, I wanted to play my own music because that was the whole reason for being on the show, you know? And the first week we were doing a, a New Zealand song or something like that. And I was thinking, well, perfect. I'm a New Zealander. I can sing my own song. And the producers didn't want me to. They wanted me to sing a pop song. And so that was basically being on there and seeing myself portrayed as this person who was, you know, singing pop songs. And that was the the main criticism I got was, you know, I wasn't happy with how I was performing these songs because I would perform my own songs better. But that's what people were saying, you know, that he was just kind of not original and all this stuff. And with the tall poppy thing, I think that the producers often said to us that they had never experienced anything like this, you know, in any of the other countries, you know, there's a kind of, usually when people supporting a show like X Factor, there's only positivity, you know, maybe you're fighting for one person rather than the other person, but there's not this active negativity towards the other contestants, you know, and I think it was a combination of that and also me being 17 and being maybe a bit naive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as I said about this concept of, you know, people are not going to care about your music as much as you care about your music. And I've realized that now, but I think at the time I kind of, I really thought that being on the show, these people were really there to help me and to like Mm. help me get my music out but actually it was just a tv show you know Mm. and so I think that was the thing that was really hard for me you know being young and being very impressionable and maybe being a bit naive and also this yeah this way of kind of I think commonwealth countries in general do is that because we're not very outspoken that we find it kind of challenging when we see other people doing it yeah for sure I'll apologize on England's behalf for that (laughs) We're going to discuss the personal aspect a bit later in the pod, mate. But from a professional perspective, have you taken any positives from it despite the negative experience? You know, for example, I imagine being exposed to that amount of people on a weekly basis can't have been easy, but you did it. You know, resilience, something else entirely that I haven't thought of. For sure, man, for sure. I mean, I'm I'm definitely very, very grateful to have that experience. You know, Daniel Beddingfield was one of the judges and he took a real... Big UK garage star in the noughties, bro. Yeah, man, he's he's great. He's an amazing singer and an amazing person. And he took a liking to me and kind of, he really saw what I was trying to do. He wasn't my judge. You know how you have, you have a judge that kind of is looking after you. He wasn't my judge, but he really made me feel good and made me feel throughout the process that I did have something to offer. And even in the years afterwards, you know, I saw him in LA a year later and and you know I've stayed in touch with him and that was that was really nice you know and I mean also you you get the opportunity to play on a on a stage like in front of so many people and I think for me learning that that wasn't something I struggled with you know I was obviously nervous but I didn't have a I never thought I couldn't do it you know and I think just to be on that stage and to kind of see like okay well this part I maybe want this is maybe what I don't want and you know also seeing the trade-off of at the end of the day, something like X Factor is really trying to 
fast track the process to success, you know, and, you know, talking earlier about this feeling of doubt, you know, you know, I really feel like there's no way to kind of fast track it, because even if you do manage to fast track it, then you're not going to feel the satisfaction of working hard, you know, Mm -hmm. so this is, it's a real trade off, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, I want to all of a sudden be go from nothing to playing on national TV. It's like, well, okay, yeah, but people are going to get the wrong idea about you because they have no context at all about where you've come from. There's no real like struggle through your through your art, you know, and there were people that were on the same competition that were, you know, 10 years older than me and they felt a lot more comfortable. They knew how to use it. They knew what they were in for and they were able to say, okay, this is what I'm going to get out of the show and this is what I'm not going to get out of the show and I'm going to use it to my advantage, which Mm. is really the way that you should look at those shows. Because of that and maybe for other reasons, you also decided to make the move to Berlin where you are as an Mm -hmm. artist now. So did it feel like a fresh start? Did it feel like an escape or both or something else? It definitely felt like a fresh start. So the reason I moved to Berlin was I came here in 2017. I was traveling around Europe for six months and I stayed with actually the same guy who told me to do music back in high school. So we we had been friends since primary school. That's a full circle moment, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, I know. We were always listening to music as kids, and that was also a reason why he moved to Berlin. He had done an exchange here in high school, and he was living here. And, you know, he introduced me to his friends over here. I met so many amazing people. You know, I went dancing. I went to, like, this club called Sisyphus, which was, you know, blew my mind because there's there's so much amazing music and so many amazing people. And it had a really big impact on me. And... I think in New Zealand, you know, I had finished my studies and I had realized how much of an effect X Factor had had on me because I had really moved away from the songwriting thing and it had, you know, taken a while for me to realize the effect that it had on me. And so I was thinking, you know, I I need a fresh start. I need to not be kind of, I need to not be in a place where I'm reminded of that. And my brother was also in a similar kind of headspace and Berlin had such a big impact on me that I was like, let's do it. Let's make the move. And Let's have a fresh start. You said something very interesting to me about Berlin off air. You said, it's hard to know in Berlin if you're being inspired or you've just seen something done really well. It doesn't always mean you're inspired. Mm -hmm. Unpack that for me. Yeah. So, I mean, I think this is especially a problem as someone who's quite impressionable. You know, there's Berlin is such a creative city and there are so many, especially with music and especially, especially with house music or electronic music. The standard is so high here. And people know that and people are also here to enjoy the music. So there's a lot of attention on the music and people are here to dance and to appreciate it and stuff like that. And I think that's a real special thing about Berlin because, you know, people maybe know lots about the music and they they want to appreciate it. They know how amazing it can be. And so there's been a lot of times, you know, I know that when I first started being inspired by electronic music that it was being inspired. It was really something that I wanted to recreate because I saw the impact it can have on people and stuff like that. But, you know, when every single party that you go to or every single club you go to, there is a new sound or there's someone doing something unique and it's working well because people are dancing and reacting really well to it. It's very hard to know when the sound is actually inspiring you or whether you're just seeing something done really well and you're seeing people react to it and you kind of want to also have that feeling with your own music. You know, for me, it's still something I'm, you know, struggling at times to kind of differentiate between the two. But I think now, you know, there was a period of time where I went completely away from the R&B and piano side of things. And I feel like I'm, I'm proud of my being able to produce. But I think after a couple of years, I realized like, hey, this is the thing that's really my point of difference. The singing and the piano, this is something that I know really well. And this is something that I can bring that's actually unique. And even though I'm not hearing it around, 
and I'm not hearing these other musicians who are, you know, playing the piano live and stuff like that. That's actually where I can be unique. And that's really helped me to kind of find my sound. I want to move on to industry issues now because a couple that you wanted to talk about. The first mm-hmm. is the difference between, or the gap, I should say, between being an unsigned artist versus a signed artist in the industry and the opportunities that are presented to you in the latter versus the former. So tell me about this from a mental health perspective. Yeah, well, I mean, I think both sides of the coin, they have their hardships and also they provide their benefits. I think for me at the moment, I really, well, this, I think I want, I think I want more opportunities, you know, I think I want more opportunities for my music to be heard. And mm-hmm. I've just signed a publishing deal and, you know, it's taken a long time and I'm still in the very early stages of this, but even in these talks, you know, like even when I met the publishing people for the first time, they were telling me that they have connections to basically all the people that I've wanted to work with. And they said it with such ease that it kind of made me realize like they're obviously well connected. And, you know, you always hear that networking is a very important part Mm of, well, everything. (laughs) But it's, a you know, it sometimes feel like just getting onto the first rung of the ladder is the difficult part, you know, and I, mm. and I don't want to say that to excuse myself or anything like that. But I do really think that it's kind of this, just like pushing and pushing and pushing. And, and if you can deal with all of this time where you're not getting the validation that you want, at some point, it's going to happen, you know, and mm. that's actually, you have to believe that that's actually part of the process. That's part of the price you have to pay. You know, that's one of the things about being creative. It's very risky. And, you know, that's also why the return, you know, the risk reward spectrum, you're very high on the risk scale, but you're also very high on the return scale, you know, that's just the path you've chosen, you know, and that's Mm -hmm. part of the deal. So yeah, so I think, you know, it does seem to me that once you're in the industry, it does become easier to, you know, continue these opportunities. But that's also why you just need to continue like pushing yourself and believe in yourself even when Mm. you don't have the the success behind it. You spoke there about validation. And that is the other issue that we're going to discuss. And we spoke off air about this constant battle within yourself about your desire for validation. And 90% of the time you can healthily achieve it yourself, but sometimes the other 10%, it will be nice to have the external yeah. validation too. How do you manage this battle? Is this podcast part of the 10%? Um, well, I mean, to be <laughs> you honest, could say no, if you, don't. you could say no. no, if you no. no, I mean, this podcast, I think it's just, I think it's always nice to explain yourself a bit more, you know, so people get a bit more context about what you're trying to do and, and your journey and stuff like that. And, I also think mental health is super important to talk about because especially with men, it's something that is still kind of a taboo subject and not many people feel comfortable talking about it. And I think it's important, especially in the days of social media, that we get an opportunity to explain how things really are and not how things seem on the stories and the posts, you know. But yeah, I would say with the validation thing, I think also what's hard about the validation thing is that I think also within creatives, it's not really something that you can say, you know, to say, hey, yeah, I want to get some success. I want to get some validation from people Mm. because it can be a dirty word, can't it? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and, you know, in an ideal world, you're doing it completely for yourself and you're not really listening to what other people say. And I also know that is kind of true, you know, because in the moments where I'm feeling low, I don't really listen to the people who are saying that I'm doing a good job. You know, it really is at the end of the day about yourself, but I think it's also completely fine to say that you want some validation. And at a certain point, I was saying to someone this year that I feel like at this point, you know, I finally feel like I'm at this point where I've been listening for a long enough time that I'm ready to start speaking. You know, there's a time for listening and there's a time to really take everything in and to kind of be quiet and be in the backstage and be the one kind of in the background. But at a certain point, you want your voice to be heard, you know, and you want to have an opportunity to kind of to show people 
yeah to show people what you're doing and i think that the stage that you're playing on and having attention and stuff it also does play into it your product is very important but you know say if someone's playing an amazing album the most amazing album ever but they're playing it in a cafe it's going to have a completely different reaction than if it's being played in like the most amazing space where people are actually there to listen to the music you know that is a part of the experience so yeah. it's like it's like when mark rebier is playing all those cafes and he's going absolutely nuts and it's just people like oh exactly. this is okay and it's just like, exactly like nods and it's like if that wasn't in a gig now everyone exactly. would go nuts <laughs> exactly yeah yeah and that's i mean that's also like this attention on you is something that you have to earn but you earn it through having more opportunities you know it's it's like, you know, when you think about someone like Frank Ocean, Frank Ocean's a very, very big inspiration for me. And he's at such an extreme point where he's earned so much attention that he can wait for yes. seven years, eight years to release an album. And people are going to give him that time. They're going to take the time aside to listen to it by themselves, listen to the lyrics. A lot of people are going to read about how each song was made, what all the, the lyrics mean and everything like that. And that means that you can enjoy the piece of art even more because you're going to look deeper. And you can make sure that your piece of art has enough depth for something, someone to do that. But for someone to actually want to do that is something you have to earn. I think the validation is, that's also one of the drives for having validation. We're going to finish by briefly talking about your discography. And the main part of it I want to pick out is your debut EP, Late Nights, which you put out in 2021. Mm -hmm. So given what you had gone through with the X Factor, all of those challenges, now you've changed your sound. You're doing this sound which you enjoy. It's getting feedback and validation positively. How big a moment was this? Um, it was it was quite tough actually. It, the whole process of releasing the EP it took you know maybe two years I think, and a lot of that was also because I was developing as I was writing the music. But I think that's the main impact that X Factor has had on me is that I've become just like super 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 sensitive about how I'm portrayed. You know, the lesson that I learned on X Factor is that it's very hard for people to change their mind about you. You know, if, if they have a certain idea about who you are and what you make and what you're trying to do, then it's a completely different story whether, uh, you know, to change their mind than if you're telling them something for the first time, you know. And so with this EP, I really wanted to bridge the gap between R&B and dance music. I also wanted to be maybe a little bit poppy or something like that. So that was really something that I was trying to do. But when you're trying to combine all of these different genres it's very hard to be clear about what you're trying to make it's very easy if you're trying to do r&b and house music together then you know sometimes you're going to end up not doing either so well you're not mm. going to appeal to the r&b crowd you're not going to appeal to the to the house music crowd and i think i'm still in that process of finding the right mix between the two but that was really the main issue for me for releasing that music and obviously you know i wanted to release it with a label and at a certain point, you email enough labels and you follow up enough emails to labels and you try all these different things. And at a certain point, you have to realize that, you know, at the end of the day, I'm still going to be writing new music. And the most important thing is to have something out there that people can listen to. And, you know, while it's nice to think that this EP is going to be the thing that opens all the doors, in reality, it's actually, you know, a thousand little steps that leads you to success and rather than just one masterpiece straight away, you know? And as a final question, before we move on, going along this music journey as you have in the various guises, what has it taught you about yourself? Um, I think that, I mean, I've, I've known that I was, I'm a quite a sensitive guy and quite, you know, I sometimes say that I'm, I'm hypersensitive, you know, there's something about myself that I wish I could turn off sometimes, you know, if I'm at a party or in a situation or something like that, you know, it's very hard for me not to notice how my friends are doing and, and little kind of 
changes in the dynamic or whatever and stuff like that because you know i like that i'm someone who cares about that stuff but sometimes you're also misreading the situation and sometimes it's kind of a, it's a waste of energy you know and i think with the music it's kind of you know made me realize that i am that person and if i'm hypersensitive and i want to transfer that into the music then that's something that i also have to wait for you know what i was saying about this attention thing is people are really going to look at the whole picture first. They're going to listen to the song and they're going to listen to the beat and how it makes them feel and all that stuff. And maybe later on, they're going to listen to the real meaning of the song and the story you're really trying to tell. But to let go of that power that, you know, the music's maybe not going to affect people as much in the first few listens and to think about the bigger picture sometimes with your music, that's something that I've really had to focus on, you know, because as a sensitive person, I want to tell these stories that have a lot of depth to them but if I'm trying to do that too much, I lose sight of the bigger picture of the music, you know? We've talked all about your music journey as Fletchy Boy. Let's go behind the mic and talk about your mental health journey, Fletch. So I ask all my special guests this question as well. Tell me about early life, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences that you had? Who's the Fletch we meet here? Um... I would say that in high school, I wasn't so aware of it. And I was very, very lucky with my upbringing and my friends. And I was a pretty heavy kid, all in all. You know, I, I was bullied a little bit at primary school. I also was a bully, which which had a bit of a, an effect on me in later life, you know, when I reflected on it and the guilt that came with that. But I think, you know, it's been a kind of constant process of being aware of, of why you do things, you know, and that's really been the big journey for me is to kind of reflect on things and, and the way you feel and the way you've acted and stuff like that. And to think about, you know, what sort of a state you were in, you know, with X Factor and thinking about what was the reason that I really pushed away from expressing myself? How did that affect me? And what lessons can I learn from that experience? And what part about the experience can I kind of try and forget about it? With X Factor, you know, that was obviously a big impact. And then a couple of years after that, I got a pretty serious surgery. So I got my appendix burst and I went to the emergency department and they sent me home saying that I had food poisoning. I spent a week at home with a burst appendix and yeah, I was pretty close to dying actually. And, and they had to remove half my intestine and half my bowel and I lost all this weight. I was super skinny. You know, I went down to, to like 60 kilos and stuff like that. So that was also at a time where I was, was always cared a lot of, I mean, I still care a lot about my body, but, you know, I lost all my muscle. I was basically just stick and bone, you know, and that was pretty hard because there was a point where I didn't really think I had much to offer and it was a very slow process coming back to being healthy again. And, you know, obviously my parents were super worried and my siblings were worried and I felt bad about that. And... I think it's been just a process of the times where I've struggled the most has been where I've been unaware of it, you know, and mm. even now, you know, it's always in these times, I think when you're feeling down, it's often the hardest when you don't really have a reason for it, you know, when you can't really understand why it is, I think that's the time when it's the most frustrating and when it has the biggest effect on you because you don't know what you can do. You don't know what you're doing right, what you're doing wrong, what are the triggers, what are the things that are keeping you down, what are the things that are bringing you up and... Yeah, I think that's kind of been the journey for me. I want to go back to the X Factor quickly, if we can, because you said earlier in the pod, you were portrayed as someone you didn't really like. And when mm -hmm. you don't have control over that and your identity to the public is controlled essentially by other people, how difficult is that to deal with? Oh, it's super difficult. I mean, especially I think when it's around something that, you know, through high school, I'd kind of been building 
I had an artist page on Facebook and stuff like that, you know, and people were listening to my music and everything was positive. And then all of a sudden, you know, I had 20,000 people on my page, but a lot of it was negative. A lot of people were saying negative stuff about my own music and obviously about my performances on X Factor and stuff. And again, I think that the major reason that affected me so much was because I wasn't aware of the fact that it was going to happen. I wasn't aware of why people were doing it. I wasn't aware mm. of the side of things that even if I knew what was going to happen, that I didn't have control over. Nothing it, you can know? ever these prepare not... you for that at that age, can you? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, these are not people you can talk to. They're not people that really have, they have their own stuff going on, you know, for the same reason that if someone's going to say, you know, something negative about you or bring you down or whatever, that's the thing about them most of the time, you know, unless it's a friend who's trying to help you, you really have to see that these people are probably not the happiest people at all. And this is the way that they're dealing with it because they're also not aware or they don't want to deal with their own issues. And at the time I didn't realize that. And I thought it was, they were genuinely just, you know, my music was making them so angry <laughs> that they, you know, felt like they needed to kind of put me down and, yeah, when it's something creative, it's very hard not to take that personally. The most impactful thing you said to me off air was there's a real struggle to be genuine when you don't know that you being genuine isn't something people want to see. How do you feel mm -hmm. hearing that back? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's not something that, again, you know, I think also talking about this as a creative, you know, you should have all this belief in yourself and you should always have the power to be completely genuine. And, you know, I know a lot of people who, can't help but completely be themselves you know and I, that's something that I respect about people more than almost anything you know when someone is completely themselves and even when they're trying to be someone else they can't help themselves but be completely that person but I think for some people you know as someone who's who's impressionable and as someone who has had a history of kind of molding to my environment there is a side about it that you know at the end of the day my music I want to affect other people I don't want it to affect just myself and in order to do that I do have to, to some degree, see how it's affecting other people, see how people are reacting to it, you know, what parts about my music are getting across to people and what parts about my music are not being translated across in a correct way, you know? Hmm. And so when I admit this part about myself and I admit that I'm someone who pays attention to this, then there is the side of things where, you know, if you're not getting the validation or you're not getting the response from a music that you want, then it's very hard to know, hey, is this something that I should ignore or is it something that I should pay attention to? You know, mm. because there is a truth in it. You know, there is a truth in it to a degree because maybe it's the wrong space and maybe it's the wrong time and maybe these people wouldn't listen to it no matter what. But also maybe there's something you can do. Maybe there is some truth in the way that they're reacting to the music and how they're validating you or not validating you. You spoke earlier in the pod about how The X Factor had more long-term consequences for your music it stopped you writing for about three to four years mm -hmm. I don't want to use this term loosely but did it feel like a sort of PTSD yeah I mean I think it was it was a weird time because I was very good you know for the four years that I was studying I was doing a conjoint degree with, with classical piano and finance and very, that's a mix <laughs> I know it's very a very very weird mix and <laughs> I was also playing rugby. I was also had a part-time job and I was very good at convincing myself at the time that I was just genuinely too busy to write music. You know, that's why I was so busy and I was doing all these courses and, you know, every day was full of stuff. You know, I had a girlfriend that I was spending a lot of time with, a lot of friends as well. And I was very good at convincing myself that it wasn't to do with, you know, something I was scared of. It wasn't something that the X Factor had done to me. It was just, I genuinely just didn't have time, you know, and it wasn't until afterwards, until 
quite a few years afterwards that I realized like, hey, I'm just doing this to myself. I'm basically not putting myself in a position to be vulnerable again. And it's a real defense mechanism, you know, and it was a defense mechanism that I couldn't even see myself or I didn't even allow myself to see because I was so affected by it. And I saw what happened the last time I was trying to put myself out there, you know, and I was like, I don't want that to happen again. You know, it's not worth it. Mm. And for four years, it wasn't worth it. You know, as much as I loved music and writing music, the pain that I felt during X Factor and the kind of the amount that it affected me and how insecure it made me outweighed the pleasure of making music. I want to briefly talk again about the move to Berlin. So you've explained why you made the move, but can you just explain for the listeners how difficult it is for people who've never been to New Zealand, how to reinvent yourself when there is an image of you already built in that country? And it, it is very much like similar to how Wales is with rugby, like a goldfish bowl. Yeah. When I look back at it now, you know, I do realize that a lot of that is also to do with me and the way that I am. And, you know, for someone who is very impressionable, and I think also because I had some negative experiences there, you know, so I think there's also the connotations I have with New Zealand and these very, very specific, you know, like this X Factor thing, it's like, it's not something that's going to happen to most people, you know, they're not going to be in a, in a situation where they're on national television and they're performing their stuff at such a young age and being naive and kind of having this happen to them and being blindsided, I can see that that's quite a unique experience to have, you know? And I do feel like when I go back there, at some point I'm sure I'll, I'll move back there. And when I go back there with the confidence of who I am and with a completely new picture of who I am and how I want to present myself, I don't think there'll be an issue because I have so much belief in it. But I think if you're someone that's still figuring it out and if you're someone that, wants to see how people react to you and you want to kind of test the waters and see you know how it works in New Zealand then it's going to be quite hard to listen to yourself because there is a certain way of things there and there's definitely the kind of the normal way to go about things which is to hedge your bets a bit more and for certain people it works but it doesn't work for everybody. What has moving to Berlin taught you about yourself? Hmm I would say... I think Berlin was really the first place that I have a few really good friends back in New Zealand still, but for the most part, it was about having friends and friends that not only liked you for who you are, but actually liked you more, the more you, you were, you know, and I think that was a really amazing, you know, to be around so many people that really wanted me to be as much Fletcher as, as I could. And the more Fletcher I was, then the more they were going to appreciate being around me. And so I think it really made me take pride in who I was and made me realize that I was a unique person that I, and that all my experiences, positive and negative, whether it was from you know being in the hospital, being on the X Factor and all this stuff, they have turned me into this. You know, they've all played their role. And, you know, arguably the bad experiences are the ones that have shaped me more because they've been the ones that have really have made me make decisions that I wouldn't have otherwise made, you know, unless I was forced into this position. So I think that and also the fact that, you know, being in a place like New Zealand or wherever you are, you know, you realize when you move overseas that a lot of these ways of life that you take for granted or you just think are the way to do things, you know, you go to high school, you go to university, maybe then you get a job and you, and you settle in that job and then you get married and have kids and whatever, you know, when everyone else around you is doing that and that's all you've seen, then you're not going to question that there's another way to do things, you know, but being in a place like Berlin, it's almost the opposite to the other extreme where it's like people are so 
the way I describe it, you know, in New Zealand, the present life, there's not enough going on. So people find it easy to invest in the future because there's not so much going on on the weekends and blah, blah, blah. So they can say, oh, yeah, I'm going to save some money to buy a house. I'm going to work on this relationship and, you know, make it work in the long term, thinking in the long term. And in Berlin, everything is about the present moment because the present life is so stimulating. But the difficult thing about that is that you could be here for five years and then realize like, oh no, I haven't saved any money. I haven't, Mm. you know, I haven't progressed with my career because I've been too busy having fun, you know? And it's really taught me that, you know, you get affected by your surroundings naturally, you know, being in Berlin, you have to pull yourself out of this and say, hey, how am I going to create a future for myself? Whereas in New Zealand, you have to kind of pull yourself out of the normal way of doing things, which is like, just invest in the future. Don't think about the present, you know? And I think you need to find the balance between that. You need to also you know, treat yourself and have fun each weekend and and see friends and stuff like that, but also not at the cost of being stuck. And as a final question, before we move on, as we reflect on your mental health journey, similar question to before, what has it taught you about yourself? And also, if you could go back and talk to the Fletch, who was that social chameleon in school, who was mastering music and mastering Mm -hmm. rugby, the 17-year-old Fletch on The X Factor, who was perhaps frustrated at the person the producers were portraying him as, or the Fletcher was about to make that move to Berlin, what would you say to him knowing what you do now? Hmm. Um, I would say it's hard because on the one side of things, I think that where I am today and all of this journey that I've been through, I kind of feel like if I changed too much or if I said something, then it might kind of change the course. Mm. And I'm very happy with how I've ended up. So it's, it's a little bit difficult. But I also think that There's a time where, you know, like when your parents say something to you and they say, you know, they tell you a lesson or they're like, you know, you shouldn't do this or this is like a a way you should live your life or whatever. And it's not until, you know, 10 or 15 years later that you realize like, oh, yeah, that's what you meant by that. you know. (laughs) And then you realize like it's not the content of what they're saying is important, but it's also about being open to listening to it, you know. And as much as I would like to say something to these the younger versions of myself, you know, I think that I wouldn't have been in a position to really take it on board, you know, because as a 17 year old, it's like, oh, okay, stop caring what other people think about you. It's like, well, yeah, but I'm I'm not going to be able to do that as a 17 year old kid, you know, like I'm still, I'm still developing, I'm still figuring out, I genuinely don't know who I am fully yet, you know, if I knew who I was, and I think when I was 17, you know, there was definitely the side of side of me that was caring too much about what other people thought about me. But there was also a side of me that I still wanted to see who I wanted to be, you know, and I was still basing that on, on my experiences, you know, and you know, I'm very glad that the younger version of myself decided to move to Berlin and was in a position where I think I'd had enough experiences that had put me in a position where I felt comfortable enough to move away from home. And, you know, that's definitely partly to do with X Factor and stuff like that. So I think for me, the superpower of mental health is really just awareness, you know, and I think that what I would do is just like kind of have a conversation with myself about not necessarily changing anything, but just being aware of how these experiences shape you and how you can actually use them to your advantage you know you can actually it's like i like to say you know you have to be kind of thrown into a cold pool a few times before you realize that it's beneficial and then you start diving in yourself you know it's like there's the people who know that these difficult times of your life are necessary and they can actually go into it trying to you know see the benefits of it and there are people who spend their whole lives trying to avoid it you know and the people who try and avoid it they don't really realize that it's going to happen in one way or another, you know, you avoid taking risks in your career, then you're going to feel it, you know, within yourself. Or if you avoid, you know, talking to these people and being vulnerable, then you might end up being lonely. And there's always a kind of trade off. And I think at at each point, 
you just have to weigh up the benefits and the negatives and decide which path you want to take. We've come to our final topic of conversation, Fletch, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests if we have time. It is a general natter and chat about mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health, mate? Today is good. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's, uh, you know, for me at the moment, it's a real, it's really changes, you know, within every day. And I think that the thing that I'm, you know, struggling with at the moment is just a you know, I feel like at the moment I'm, I'm in a position where I'm, you know, going to the gym in a, a fairly regular amount. I'm spending the hours doing the music. I'm ticking all the boxes, as one could say, you know. But sometimes, you know, it doesn't feel like enough. Sometimes it feels like, you know, the, at the moment, you know, trying to get labels interested and, man- and managers interested and stuff like that, sending these emails and not getting replies. And I've kind of realized that I'm not so good at putting the power into other people's hands, you know, mm-hmm. and this is a point in my music where, you know, I need to have other people on board. I need to kind of outsource these things. I can't do everything myself. I can't produce and write and release and everything with my music. And so I need to put the power in other people's hands, but that means I need to rely on other people. Mm. And that means that, you know, hard, I have bro. to give up some yeah. of the power. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, it's hard. It is hard. I have that struggle myself sometimes. Yeah. What mental health conditions or issues, if any, do you live with and how do they affect you in your day-to-day life? Um, I think that I'm a very restless person and I think I can be very hard on myself, you know? It's always this question of whether I'm putting in enough effort, whether I'm, you know, I think to a degree everyone has to suffer enough, you know, just like I say that there's, you know, there's not really any way to hide and if you can put yourself through something hard, then you will come out on the other side stronger, you know? And so you need to put yourself in these positions of being uncomfortable and, you know, like going to the gym is the most simple form of it. You know, you go in there and you work hard and you get very tired and exhausted and stuff, but at the end of it, you feel better than you did before because you've worked, you know? And the gym is kind of this, it's like the opposite of being creative for me because it's a guaranteed result. You know exactly what you're going to do. And, you know, if you work hard, then you're going to get the results. And... I know the benefit of that, you know, and it's the same with being creative, you know, I know that if I was just doing it when it was fun, then I wouldn't be succeeding the way I was doing it now. And so I need to put myself through a certain amount of uncomfortable experiences, but also finding the balance between that and, you know, just like pushing yourself too much. And, you know, last week, you know, I was super happy with the show, but there were points where there was nothing else I could think about. I was stressed the whole week. I was writing the whole week. I was, you know, like every single day, all day, I was like, I don't have time to go to the gym and I wasn't eating properly. And, you know, just like there's a point where it's like, okay, at what point is the cost too much? At the end of the day, you want to be doing this for the rest of your life. And so you need to find a way that that is actually sustainable for the next 40, 50 years, as opposed to just like pushing yourself so much that you succeed. But by the end of the five years and you're successful, you're just like, you can't even make music again, you know? When did you first become self-aware of your mental health what age were you and you realized the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind I would say I think with the the experience with the hospital I think that was you know that was two years after X Factor and I think at the time that that happened I was still wasn't really aware of how X Factor had affected me and you know when I had this experience with the hospital it was really something that I needed to take control over you know because you know I was pretty sick and you know I had lost a lot of weight you know and it was sort of this question of well if you're not going to do it if you're not going to be the one to pick yourself up again and to kind of bring yourself back to a good healthy person mentally and physically then 
no one else can do it. You know, your parents obviously want to help you. Your siblings obviously want to help you, but you're the one that has to say yes in the first place, you know? And so that was the first kind of moment where I realized that I need to take this on and encourage myself and put myself in positions where I can get opportunities to improve and get back to, to where I was before the surgery. And it was also, you know, after to be a year later, I was, I was doing this half marathon. That was the kind of the thing that I was kind of building up. I, I signed myself up and said, I'm going to do this half marathon. And, you know, after running that, then it was a point that I could be really proud of myself. And I knew that, you know, I knew that was kind of what I always said to myself that that was the benefit, you know, you can push yourself. And now obviously, you're not going to want to go to the gym because you're much weaker than you were. And you're not going to want to work on yourself because you're in a worse state of mind. But there is a benefit at the end, you know, and that was kind of the first time where I really realized that I had to take this on myself. And it was really a personal journey more than it was something that I could share with people. Can you remember the first ever conversation you had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What did you say? And how did you feel afterwards looking back? Did it feel like on the one hand, a big moment or burden or weight had been lifted off your shoulders or on the other, something very easy, insignificant and normal to do? Um, I'm not sure about informal conversations, but I would say there was one, you know, the first time I went to see a therapist was actually just before I moved to Berlin and I was making music with my brother. That's why we moved to Berlin because we wanted to make music together. But we were having quite a lot of issues as siblings, you know, like our relationship as siblings was struggling. And I was feeling very frustrated. I was feeling very frustrated at the time. You know, I was, I knew that I was going to be breaking up with my girlfriend in five years and moving overseas. And I felt like I was doing more of the work in terms of the promoting and all that stuff with the music and stuff. And then I had this talk with this therapist, you know, and it kind of made me realize that, first of all, the way I was feeling, you know, the stress that I was feeling and, you know, the way that I was kind of taking it out on, on my brother and also putting it all into my music and putting all this pressure on the music was something that I also needed to take responsibility for. And at the same time, the way that my brother was acting was also as a result of how he was doing because he was also, you know, going through his, his own things and having a conversation about that and kind of realizing, hey, you also need to take responsibility because when you think, you know, the normal way to think is that, you want to protect yourself. You want to think that what you're doing is right and that you're justified for saying the things you say and feeling the way you feel and, and stuff like that. And that conversation with the therapist really made me realize, hey, look, he's also going through something. He's also dealing with it in the way that he wants to. And he's also reacting. He's in a compromised state, you know, just like you are. And this is why it's not working. It's not because of him. It's not just because he's the one that's not capable. It's because both of you are compromised. Both of you can't see things from the right perspective because you're you know not in the best state of mind and yeah just to take responsibility for your side of it what things do you find in life that trigger your mental health so it could be things people say to you a sound a sensation being in a particular social environment or have you not figured all of them out yet um i think that i'm still a lot more sensitive to people's opinions of me than i would like mm -hmm. to admit so yeah i think like you know if people are saying saying things about me especially you know, if, if it's with good friends, then that's a completely different thing because I really, I don't have a hard time believing that they want to help me. But if it's with people that I don't know so well and, you know, they would make comments about the way I'm working or maybe about my songs or kind of, especially about my music, but also about, you know, certain habits that I have or something like that, that can often trigger it. But I do really feel like that is getting fewer and, you know, far between. And I think that for me, the main mental health struggle is is within myself and, you know, whether what I have to offer is good enough and sometimes whether I'm working hard enough to make it happen. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to say that that's not affecting me as much. The external factors are not affecting me as much as they used to. 
And conversely, what positive tools and methods do you use in your life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? Uh, I think that the number one thing is exercise. I mean, I think for me, especially as a creative and knowing that the creative side of things is so unsure, I could sit in the studio for six hours and come up with something that I don't want to use at the end of the day. And that's quite tough, you know, but to have something that has a guaranteed amount of progress, you know, and that's always been something for me that I knew about exercises that, you know, going to the gym and, and working out, you know, working out or doing cardio or something like that, you have at least something you can say that you did that helped you progress. And having something like that, especially if you're creative, it can also be learning a language or learning a new skill or something like that, you know, it gives you something to be proud of that is actually tangible. Because when you're trying to do something creative or something that doesn't have like a with you know with, if you're writing a song you don't know whether you're going to use that song you don't know whether people are going to like it you don't know if it's going to have any real success you know you might not even like it the next day so it's important to have something that's really yeah that's really tangible that you can say okay well at least I did this at least I did I ticked off these things you know and I wouldn't say it hasn't worked but I have been meaning to get into meditation for the last like five years and whenever I do it I'm really really happy with it but I need to find the time to invest in it you know I, I think that it's the same with exercise, you know, in the initial phases when you're not seeing the benefits, it's very hard to justify finding the time for it. And as soon as you start to see how much it affects you, and you know, luckily, I've been doing exercise regularly for a long time. So I don't have a hard time going to the gym because I know how it affects me, you know. But with meditation, I think it's just a matter of saying, look, you commit for a month, and then the motivation feeds itself. What has been the best book, or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? Now, it can be mental health or self-help related. It doesn't exclusively have to be. It can be fiction. And if you can't think of a book, TV, podcast, any piece of popular culture. Um, I would say there's this book, you know, Jack London. Uh, he's a, he's a music producer. Yes, I do. Yes. Yeah. No, wait. So I think he's called... Oh, if I... I don't know, maybe it's not Jack London. Anyway, there's a book called Martin Eden that was written in the early 1900s that a good friend of mine recommended to me. It's kind of a semi-biography about the author. It's basically about a young sailor who's quite uneducated and he saves the life of someone. And basically the person who he saves the life of is from a very wealthy family. And he falls in love with this girl, but he's kind of introduced into this family where they don't really accept him because he's uneducated. He doesn't know much about anything. And he's super passionate about poetry and writing. And so he says, well, look, I'm going to educate myself completely on my own, even though I don't have any money or anything like that. I'm going to completely educate myself and I'm going to earn the right to be in this family, you know, to be in this kind of level of society. And it's a really beautiful story about success. And, you know, he kind of realizes through this process about things that he thinks that he wants and, you know, the main driver initially for him to kind of be creative and to have this creative outlet is to win this girl over and to get the approval of these people and throughout the process of the book he kind of realizes like actually these people are not really even worth getting my validation from you know there's a lot down to it there's a lot else going on you know and I think as a musician it also made me realize you know the importance of music as a personal journey as well as kind of you think that this is what you want this is what the, the experience on x factor was you know like i think that's all i want all i want is kind of the approval of these people and then you realize this is actually quite an empty feeling if you don't have the approval from yourself and this is his kind of whole journey as he goes through the process of educating himself and becoming a writer and struggling with success on and on you know and it's a real journey and it really helped me to kind of 
put things into perspective about what success really is and how much of it is within you, you know? If there was a mantra in life that summed up your mental health, what would it be and why? Um, I think that one of the most important things in life is to find a balance between everything. You know, finding the balance between work and play, finding the balance between pushing yourself and giving yourself a break. You know, this sort of balance between tension and release, because I think that's really the bad parts about life, the bad experiences of life, the times when you're struggling. At the end of the day, those are the things that make you see how good a good day is. And while we don't want to be in these bad days every day, it's important to realize that they're also playing their role into giving us appreciation for the good things. And being able to embrace that, you know, it's, I think that with mental health, when we're not doing so well, the initial impression is to try and get away from it as fast as possible and to try and fix it. You know, it's, it's saying, oh, yeah, well, you know, I'm drinking too much, I need to stop right now. And I need to kind of just like cut it out and do this kind of big drastic change. But sometimes it's just about being aware of it. Sometimes it's just about taking note and saying, okay, I can see that this thing is affecting me. And when I do have the energy to make a change, I will, but I don't have to do it today. And I don't have to to make these big changes every day because I think that's how we get overwhelmed sometimes is seeing all these things that we're doing that we don't like and being so overwhelmed by having to change all these things and kind of saying, hey, look, I need to find the balance between taking action and also just allowing myself to be in the journey of getting better and progressing, you know, because we can't become the people that we want in one day. We just have to work on ourselves as much as we have the energy for. And as a final question, mate, what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if, most importantly, they want to do it? Uh, more episodes of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, mate. That no, question is not an excuse <laughs> to plug. No, no, no. But I think that just, yeah, normalizing it, obviously, that's the way to talk about it. I think I think it all starts from the ground level, you know. I think that we all need to play our part and making sure that we notice as we become more aware of ourselves, we also become more aware of, of the other men around us. And, you know, we can't also rely on people to bring it up themselves because for some people, it might be the first time they've talked about it. Mm. Maybe they also don't know, you know, that maybe they're also not aware that other people are going through this and they feel a serious, a sort of embarrassment. I think it's better, you know, not talking about it on like a grand scale, but you personally, if you see someone not doing well, you just have to give them the opportunity to open up, give people the opportunity to talk about it, make sure they feel comfortable. And really, I think when you're having those conversations, the main thing to recognize is they need to feel like they're not being judged and they need to feel like you're there to listen to them. You know, if they're telling you anything embarrassing, the main thing to do is you're not giving advice, you're just asking questions and Often that's all they need, you know, just for them to see how they feel, for them to get it out in the open. And it helps people put things into perspective and realize, hey, there's other people going through this. And now that I've said it out loud, I can recognize what parts about it are what I can fix. And on that note, Fletcher, thank you so much for coming on Behind the Mic. And thank the, you so much. And the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me, pal. No worries. Thank you very much for having me. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of Behind the Mic. I want to say a big thank you to Fletch for being my special guest on this episode and for letting me go behind the mic with him. My favourite song of Fletcher's I Got will play us out and I'll put all of his streaming and social media links in the show notes as always. I'll sign us off by saying thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on social media. 
tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a five-star rating Apple Podcasts and help us out with the algorithms. If you like what we're doing here at Vent and want to support us further, you can do so by going to our Patreon. That's www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. Or you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe or buy a Vent t-shirt or buy a ticket to Just Checking In podcast live show. That's Friday, September 29th at Eton Manor Rugby Club in Wanstead in North East London. Stay tuned for the next episode of Behind the Mic. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent.